Well, good morning. Please open your Bibles to Exodus 35. Exodus chapter 35. Continuing on in our series, titled This Message is Called Out from Rebellion to Obedience. And the takeaway, I guess you could call it, is that God's covenant faithfulness moves the hearts of his people from rebellion to obedience to all that he commands. Let me begin by reading our text this morning. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 29. Moses assembled all the congregation of the people of Israel. These are the things that the Lord has commanded you to do. This day's work shall be done, but on the seventh day... You shall have a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on it shall be put to death. You shall kindle no fire in all your dwelling places on the Sabbath day. Moses said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, This is the thing that the Lord has commanded. Take from among you a contribution to the Lord. Whoever is of a generous heart, Let him bring the Lord's contribution, gold, silver, and bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen, goat's hair, tanned ram skins and goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the light, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, and the onyx stones and stones for setting, for the ephod and for the breastpiece. Let every skillful craftsman among you come and make all the Lord has commanded. The tabernacle, its tent and its covering, its hooks and its frames, its bars, its pillars and its bases. The ark with its poles, the mercy seat and the veil of the screen. The table with its poles and all its utensils and the bread of the presence. The lampstand also for the light with its utensils and its lamps and the oil for the light and the altar of incense with its poles and the anointing oil and the fragrant incense and the screen for the door at the door of the tabernacle. The altar of burnt offering with its grating of bronze, its poles and its utensils, the basin and its stand, the hangings of the court, its pillars and its bases and the screen for the gate of the court the pegs of the tabernacle and the pegs of the court and their cords, the finely worked garments for ministering in the holy place, the holy garments for Aaron the priest and the garments of his sons for their service as priests. Then all the congregation of the people of Israel departed from the presence of Moses and they came. Everyone whose heart stirred him and everyone whose spirit moved him and brought the Lord's contribution to be used for the tent of meeting and for all its service and for the holy garments. So they came, both men and women, all who were of a willing heart, brought brooches and earrings and signet rings and armlets, all sorts of gold objects, every man dedicating an offering of gold to the Lord. And everyone who possessed blue or purple or scarlet yarns or fine linen or goat's hair or tanned ram skins or goat skins brought them. Everyone who could make a contribution of silver or bronze brought it as the Lord's contribution. 
and everyone who possessed acacia wood of any use in the work brought it. And every skillful woman spun with her hands, and they all brought what they had spun in blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen. All the women whose hearts stirred them to use their skill spun the goat's hair. And the leaders brought onyx stones and stones to be set for the ephod and for the breastpiece. And the spices and oil for the light and for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense. All the men and women, the people of Israel, whose heart moved them to bring anything for the work that the Lord had commanded by Moses to be done, brought it as a free will offering to the Lord. Now this seems pretty straightforward. It begins with the Sabbath regulations being repeated. Contributions were commanded. Craftsmen told to make the tabernacle and associated elements. And the people obeyed. Okay. Uh, We'll see you next week. Same time. Now, the book of Exodus is written as narrative, and and it might be helpful to think of biblical narrative as history and theology brought together in the form of a story. You can't just drop in on a narrative, or, or any story for that matter, and immediately grasp its intended meaning and significance. Today, for example, why does Moses assemble the congregation and repeat the Sabbath regulations they've already heard before? Why do the Israelites, these same people who were worshiping a golden calf three chapters earlier, now suddenly obey everything the Lord commands from this point forward to the end of the book of Exodus? And finally, what does any of this have to do with me? Well, this message is a follow-up to Pastor Mike's last week as our story continues. So join me as I pray for God's blessing on our time together. Lord, thank you so much for today. The assembly is gathered before you. And Lord, they didn't come to hear me. They came to hear from you in your word. I pray that you would continue to help me to be faithful to what you've said and to faithfully proclaim what your word says to us. Lord, bless our time together. May your spirit take these words of mine and turn them into your words to reach the hearts of your people who are gathered here. We ask this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Well, if you see on your first point, in your outline, it's God's covenant faithfulness. Now, some, some remarks are in order. The modern world and the concept of covenant, <laughs> it's to, to the modern world, is somewhat foreign or strange. Even the word covenant sounds old-fashioned and outdated and obsolete. After all, this is uh, the age of technology. We have the internet, self-driving cars, talking computers, Phones that are smarter than we are. 
we tend to think of covenants that, that there's some type of contract or, or a set of rules your neighborhood association expects you to abide by that you actually have no intention of following once you move in. So it's this historical gap between when the exodus occurred and our day today that, that makes it somewhat difficult to fully grasp the significance of God's covenant with his people and why it should matter to us here this morning. So, some background. The covenant as an ancient Near East concept. Now, archaeology has given us some examples of ancient Near Eastern covenants. Generally, now this is general, they fall into two categories. There's parity agreements between equal parties. And there's something called the suzerain or suzerainte treaty between non-equal parties. It could be between a greater king and a lesser king. It could be uh, a lord over his vassals or his feudal tenants that are occupying and living on the land. And what they've discovered is just as a basic format that these suzerain treaties have in common. For example, there's always a, a preamble where the, uh, the, the author is identified, the author's title, and a little bit of the nature of the relationship between parties. There's a historical prologue where this relationship, the history, is brought to bear. There are ethical stipulations and sanctions and something called ratifying ceremonies. Now, regarding that, the uh, Old Testament scholar Meredith Klein tells us this, that, that there are a number of ratifying ceremonies that were used depending on, upon the era and culture. But the most widely used rite was that of cutting the bodies of animals in halves, placing them in two rows with enough space between the two parties of the treaty to walk side by side. And as they walked between the pieces, they were vowing to each other, May what has happened to these animals happen to me if I break this covenant with you. Now, when it comes to biblical covenants, they generally resemble this suzerain treaty or suzerainty treaty between non-equal parties. For example, the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20, you kind of see this structure of format. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. And on. But even in our modern understanding, it just doesn't quite capture the abiding personal nature between parties in God's covenant with his people. So my definition, it might, you might find this helpful, is that God's covenant is, is God's sacred commitment to the special relationship he establishes with his people forever. Now, God's covenant faithfulness is actually a major theme in the book of Exodus. Exodus opens up with the sons of Israel and their faithfulness, or fruitfulness rather, as a people, multiplying and growing exceedingly strong in Egypt. It says the land was full of them. Now, this is a demonstration of the Lord's covenant faithfulness to what he told Jacob in Genesis 46 when he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt for there I will make you into a great nation. We see it in chapter 2 when the people of Israel cried out for rescue from slavery. 
And God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. We see it in chapter 3 where the Lord uses the phrase, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob in the calling of Moses. And how God wanted Moses to specifically refer to him, to the people, as the one who would bring them out of the affliction of Egypt and into the promised land. In chapter 5, we see God's covenant faithfulness and his command to Pharaoh through Moses and Aaron to let my people go. And in chapter 6, we see the Lord specifically make reference to appearing to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob and establishing his covenant with them, to hearing the groaning of his people and remembering his covenant, to his promise to bring them out of Egypt, deliver them from slavery, redeem them, and perform great acts of judgment on their behalf. In the taking the Israelites to be his people and to be their God bringing them into the land that he swore to give to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob, which is a clear reference to his covenant faithfulness and his commitment to them as his people. Now, to save some time, there's other major events in the story where we see this demonstrated again and again. In the Passover, when God passed over the Israelites in judgment, when he struck Egypt with the plague of the firstborn. We see it in the destruction of Pharaoh's army when Moses told the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. You see it in the institution of the Sabbath, which God intended to be a covenant sign forever. In the giving of the law, God's suzerainty treaty with his people, establishing his sacred relationship with them. And we see it in restraining his wrath against the idolatrous Israelites at the foot of Mount Sinai. If you recall, <laughs> the thrust of Moses' plead to him was dependent on God's covenant faithfulness. He said this in Exodus thirty-two, thirteen: Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven. And all this land that I have promised, I will give to you your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. Now, God didn't need a reminder. We've seen this all. I took you from the very beginning of the book of Exodus. He didn't need the reminder. This exchange is for Moses and the people of God that they might grasp the enormous importance of God's covenant faithfulness, his sacred commitment to them as his people. Now, last week when the Lord proclaimed his name to Moses and when he renewed his covenant with the people of Israel, we see his covenant faithfulness even there. When he proclaimed his name, it's the Lord, the Lord. It's actually Yahweh, Yahweh in, in the Hebrew. When he talks of his own Steadfast love and faithfulness. The covenant-keeping God reaffirming his sacred commitment to his people. Now, this theme is repeatedly emphasized throughout the book of Exodus. You could say it's a, a melody that the composer keeps returning to throughout the whole story. Now, as we move into the text for today, we have the Sabbath confirmed in verses 1 through 3. 
Now, it's important here where we look at immediate context because when was the last time the Israelites heard directly from God through Moses? If you recall, it was in Exodus 33 in the command to leave Sinai. This is the last thing they heard from him. Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go with you lest I consume you on the way. For you are a stiff-necked people. And their response, when the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments. So, Moses had returned to the mountain again. He was gone 40 days and 40 nights, and comes back down with the tablets. Well, it's a different story than the last time. Aaron and the people now appear to be waiting for Moses to return. No golden calf. No debauchery. No idolatry. No angry Moses and broken tablets. Moses assembled the congregation and spoke the word of God to them, confirming the Sabbath. By confirming the Sabbath... God was confirming his sacred commitment, his covenant faithfulness to his people forever. That he was still their God, and they were still his people. Now this is critical for understanding the people's response we'll see in the second major heading here. But before we get into that, I want you to remember something about the Sabbath. Is that it's intended as a covenant sign forever, according to Exodus 31. It was a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. Some of your translations say, make you holy. It was a sign to be observed throughout their generations as a covenant forever. It was a sign between me and the people of Israel that in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. Now, a quick note about signs. (laughs) The purpose of a sign is to point to something else. Now, if you look up here at me for a moment, is I'll give you the function of a sign. If you're looking up here, here's what a sign does. If those of you that are listening and not seeing, I'm standing here pointing off to the side and looking in that direction. That's the function of a sign. We get confused about signs. We uh, focus on the sign and not what the sign is pointing to. (laughs) For example, when it comes to the Sabbath, which day of the week (laughs) should the Sabbath be observed? Is it Friday? Sunday? What activities are actually considered work? What if I uh, have to work weekends? Can I play sports? Uh, can I go to the movies? Is it okay to go to a restaurant? I mean, these are the things that come to our mind when we focus on the sign rather than the thing signified. I, I, I think there's no surprise that there's a fairly big disagreement about this whole thing. Uh, there's one school of thought that said it's, it's irrelevant now because uh, of our relationship in, the, in, in Christ, but this was intended as a sign forever. Well, what does that mean to us? I think it's important to remember what the sign is pointing to and to focus on that. That God's the creator. That he made everything. 
that it's He that makes you holy. That He wants you to remember His covenant forever. His sacred commitment to His people. And to rest in that. Now, I think this is consistent with what you find in Colossians 2 and Hebrews 4. Some may disagree. But another note on on the Sabbath and signs is that it's not to be taken as the opportunity (laughs) to judge others. And we do that, don't we? I think you could look at Romans 14 and see that that's not the case here. Shouldn't be doing that. I don't go out, but look at those guys. They go to the movies. They go to restaurants. They're breaking the Sabbath. Come on. It's not to be taken as an opportunity to judge others. If you remember the institution of the Sabbath back in Exodus 16, that it was commanded that an omer, of a, I think it's a couple of quarts, of manna, because that's the original context, was to be set aside and kept as a permanent reminder of God's provision and covenant faithfulness to his people. It's in the ark of the covenant. Now, this doesn't mean, <laughs> please don't take this. I know you're going to, some of you may disagree, but, but don't take this to, to that, well, after here, you head to the country club and you get in a quick nine because Brian said, as long as I'm thinking about the Sabbath, I'm good. That's not what I'm saying. Okay? What I'm saying is to focus and emphasize the thing signified rather than the sign itself. And to rest in that. I could lay in bed and not move a muscle on Friday to Saturday. Or I could do it all day Sunday. And, and the things of God could be the farthest thing from my mind. Is that observing the Sabbath? So you see, it takes some work. And that's not the focus of the message. But I think the idea is to focus on the thing signified. Rather than get caught up in exactly the sign itself. Now, we move into now in verses 4 through 19. The contribution to the Lord. We've got the tabernacle and its elements. These were the materials collected to construct the tabernacle. In Hebrew, it's the hamishkan, the dwelling, to prepare for the Lord's dwelling place here. And the various elements, but there isn't any specific blueprint just yet. That's coming. So the tabernacle, when constructed, would would be an important representation of God's master plan for his people. It tells us of the necessity of a blood sacrifice, of a mediator who enters a holy place alone into the very presence of God to offer this sacrifice on behalf of the people for the forgiveness of sin and atonement for sin. That's the picture. So you see that this picture that the Israelites will play a key role in history through their contribution that that will ultimately reveal this to God's plan to redeem his people. As Mike has said, this is a, it gives them a category to understand what happened later as we look back. Now, what were the people's response? And I'll tell you right now, it's easy to get lost in the details. As you start going through this, you start looking at this extensive detail in the contributions themselves. But what, what you might miss if you get tied up in those details is you might miss what the author repeatedly emphasizes in the passage about the people's hearts. It's mentioned five times in this short section. It was a change of heart towards God in three ways. In the first way, it was a change in the generosity towards God. In verse 5, the, the, the opening was, whoever is of generous heart... 
And they responded to the Lord's commands. In verse 21, it's everyone whose heart stirred him and everyone whose spirit moved him brought the Lord's contribution. Verse 22 of 35, both men and women, all who were of willing heart, brought brooches and earrings and signet rings and armlets, all sorts of gold objects, every man dedicating an offering of gold to the Lord. And if you consider this, how they came to be in possession of these things, (laughs) they relinquished their plunder to the one who is responsible for giving it to them in the first place. We also see a change of heart in service to God. In verse 26, all the women whose hearts stirred them to use their skill spun the goat's hair. And we see it in this willingness to obey. In verse 29, obedience to God's commands was not a means to gain favor or because of guilt or force, but as a free will offering to the Lord. Now, to take this idea of expanding this idea of God's covenant faithfulness, after all, we have to, we're not Jews living in the time of the Exodus. All right? A lot's happened since then. <laughs> so let's just pan out a little bit and move forward through this storyline. And you see it in item three, the gospel as new covenant proclamation. It's expanding on this theme of God's covenant faithfulness. We see the new covenant anticipated in the Old Testament. It's anticipated by Moses when he told the Israelites of a future circumcision of the heart for the people of God in Deuteronomy 30. We see it anticipated by the prophets, by Nathan in the Lord's covenant that he reveals to King David. In 2 Samuel 7, the Lord's word to David was this, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. He wasn't talking about Solomon. Solomon was made king while David was still alive. And it's an everlasting throne in an everlasting kingdom that's in mind here. We see this anticipation of this new covenant by Jeremiah when he spoke of a future covenant when God would write his law on the hearts of his people and God would forgive their iniquity and remember their sin no more. Jeremiah 31. We see it anticipated by Ezekiel's prophecy during the Babylonian captivity that there would come a time when God would give his people a new heart, when he would put his spirit within them and cause them to walk in his statutes and obey his rules. (laughs) We see it anticipated in the Psalms, Psalms that praise God's faithfulness in fulfilling his promise, that David's offspring would rule from a throne that would last forever. For example, Psalm 89. (coughs) I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord forever. With my mouth I will make known your faithfulness to all generations. For I said steadfast love will be built up forever. In the heavens you will establish your faithfulness. You have said I've made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David my servant. I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. And now we fast forward to the new covenant realized 
in the New Testament. It's realized in the person of Jesus Christ. The circumcision of the heart Moses anticipated. Paul tells the church in Rome that true circumcision is a matter of of the heart by the Spirit. Not something outward and physical. God's covenant with David, prophesied by Nathan and sung in the Psalms, is realized in the person of Jesus as his offspring. Now, I found this passage in Acts 13. (coughs) There was too many points of contact to just summarize it for you that I wanted to read it. It was Paul on the Sabbath (laughs) in Antioch in the synagogue talking to men of Israel and you who fear God. And this is what he said. The God of this people Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David the son of Jesse a man after my heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior Jesus, as he promised. God's covenant faithfulness. The future Ezekiel spoke about when God would put his spirit within his people, causing them to walk in his statutes and obey his rules, is realized in those who receive Christ. Paul, writing the church at Corinth, tells them they are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells within them. And that they are the recipients of and ministers of the new covenant in Christ. Christ is the mediator of a better covenant, much more excellent than the old, since it's enacted on better promises, Hebrews 8 tells us. And the author specifically cites in this text, Jeremiah 31, to point out that these are the better promises now realized. And that the new covenant makes the first covenant obsolete. Christ is called the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Hebrews 9. The death of Jesus redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Well, who who were them? Believers in the Old Testament. Those under the first covenant. And finally, and more importantly, the new covenant is realized in Jesus' interpretation of his own death. In Luke 22, (laughs) gathered with his disciples at Passover. And he took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup 
that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Realized in him. Christ's death simultaneously (laughs) redeems those under the first covenant and those who enter the new covenant by faith in his blood. In one act. (laughs) The Lord's sign, the Lord's supper, is a sign of the new covenant in Christ. His body broken for us. His blood poured out for us. Echo Jeremiah 31, 34, I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. The gospel is the proclamation of the ultimate expression of God's covenant faithfulness to a people he calls to himself. In Luke 24, the resurrected Jesus says this to his disciples. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. Now you see in your handout, in the bulletin, we get down to our response. So I'd like to return to our introduction and look at those questions again, see if we answered them. The first one was, why does Moses assemble the congregation and repeat the Sabbath regulations the people have already heard before? Well, the answer was by, con- by confirming the Sabbath to them, God was confirming his covenant with them that his sacred commitment to them, that he is still their God and they are still his people. To the second question, why do the Israelites, these same people who were worshiping a golden calf three chapters earlier, now suddenly obey everything the Lord commanded from this point forward to the end of Exodus? The answer, the people's hearts were stirred and moved to willingly obey all God commanded in response to his covenant faithfulness. And finally, we look at this, and it's actually the question this morning. What does any of this have to do with me? What I would ask you, is your heart moved in response to God's covenant faithfulness today? Is your heart moved with generosity towards God? Consider giving your own contribution to the work he's doing here at Faith Church. Is it stirred with a desire to serve God? Well, what is, uh, sure, what do I do? Well, there's opportunity to serve in one of the various ministries we have here. We've got prayer, worship, greeting, the usher ministry, the food bank every third Wednesday. Is your spirit moved with a willingness to obey all that he commands, like the Israelites did when he confirmed his covenant faithfulness to them. 
Now a note on this is that we, we rightly exalt the perfect obedience of Christ and the righteousness that is ours by faith in Him. Yet God has given His people His Spirit that they might walk in His statutes and obey His commands willingly. Sometimes we minimize our own obedience. And why all these letters in the New Testament? guys need to be more forgiving, more loving towards others. As God has forgiven you, so you must forgive one another. You see? Jesus actually said that obedience is the way we show our love for him in John 14, 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. There's action with loving God. Now, Perhaps uh, you find yourself somewhere else. Perhaps your heart has been moved and stirred by understanding, maybe for the first time in your life, the extreme lengths the creator of the universe was willing to go in order to call a people to himself, in order to call you to himself. It's this true for you today, then, then let your heart turn to him. Stop running. Stop trying to hide from him. Ask his forgiveness and seek his mercy with all your heart. And in my case, you may have to be on your face before him, begging him. For mercy. Now, those of you that even don't know your Bible all that well, you know John 3, 16 and 17. But have you ever thought of this passage in the context of God's covenant faithfulness? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. God's promise to Abraham that through your seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Have you actually considered, if you are in Christ, that you are a living, breathing example of God's covenant faithfulness? (laughs) To call a people to himself. To have this sacred relationship with you forever. Eternal life in his name. Let's pray.